Hi, Cornelius here. Thanks for tuning in to the Gypsy House Hangouts podcast, episode 13. In this episode, we interviewed John Lavoie. Now, John is a UK guitar luthier who pretty much was the first guy to start making Gypsy Jazz guitars in the UK. And he's got loads of interesting stories about how the scenes kind of changed over time and little things that help make Gypsy Jazz more popular. We talk about all the sort of famous players that have ended up with guitars, including the lead singer of the Manic Street Preachers. So who'd have thought that? Uh, joining us was my good friend Joe Morris, and we talk a lot about really nerdy guitar stuff, how they're built, different kinds of wood, uh, sort of pliages and all this kind of thing. Really nerdy, really geeky guitar stuff, so you got that to look forward to. Uh, if you want to spot the podcast, please uh, consider, go to the Facebook page, give it a like, got a YouTube channel, um, subscribe to that, you know, like the video, all that kind of thing, and uh, share it with your mates and you know, spread the word. But anyway, until then, enjoy episode 13 of the Gypsy Jazz Hangouts podcast. Cheers. Okay, guys, here we go. It's uh, Gypsy Jazz Hangouts episode 13. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, this week we've got a really cool, absolute famous luthier. Needs no introduction. He's pretty much the number one guy in the UK when you think UK Gypsy Jazz Luthiers. This guy comes right at the top of the tree. It's John Lavoy. John, how are you, sir? No, I'm all right, thanks. Yeah, all right at the minute. Still keeping my head above water. Just about, just about. And of course, Joe, I think you might be on mute there, mate. Um, Yep, sorry. Hey, well done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, usually I prefer you on mute, but for this circumstance, we'll we'll let you talk a bit. My old mate Joe Morris, how are you, Joe? Yeah, good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, good, mate. Yeah, I'm all right. I'm I'm feeling okay. It's uh, feels like we're coming to the end of this uh, lockdown business. I'm feeling I'm feeling good. I'm feeling optimistic. There's things things happening, things stirring. You know. Well, let's hope you're right. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. Interesting to see what happens after the May elections i think yeah well, there's all sorts of all sorts of ifs and buts aren't there that's the truth well of it. that's the way she goes yeah. now yeah. then here we go john so let me tell you about this in 2010 there was a really fantastic documentary made uh, called john and jimmy dreams drugs and django this is a documentary all about um the great jimmy rosenberg one of the great talents yeah. of his era and him, the relationship he had with his friend and mentor, I suppose it's fair to say, Jon Larsen from yep. Norway. Now, if you go to um, Amazon or wherever, you want to purchase this on DVD, uh, this, I think you guys can see this picture. This is the front cover. Can you see that picture there? Yep. Now, this is a very young Jimmy and a, a young, handsome-looking Jon Larsen there. And I think that's one of your guitars, John. It is one of mine, indeed. It's one of yours. So when, how did this come about, this chap from Norway picking up a guitar from Lincolnshire? Well, uh -huh. yes. Uh, do you remember um, Ian Cruikshank? Um, I know the name. Yeah, I've, I've ringing any bells. Yeah, yeah, he yeah, wrote yeah. That. a really famous book. He did, right? He did, he did a book on sort of on on yeah. He did a book sort of more or less teach yourself Django, so to speak, um, which was oh crikey, came out in the I think probably about seventy nine something like that. Right, it was quite a long way back. Um, I mean, he was he was. It was like slightly awkward character in some regards, um, a bit abrasive, but he was uh, singularly responsible for getting things going in this country. Uh, he, he was heavily involved in the Django Legacy uh, video that we were discussing uh, a few minutes ago. Um, in, in, get, in fact, he played on it, he, he appeared on it, but he also brought over characters to play at um, places like Pizza Express, 
in London. This is back in the ooh, late 70s and 80s, before it all sort of took off. And then that um, the Django Legacy video, uh, that was transmitted, I can tell you when it was transmitted, first transmitted on the telly in 91, because it got, it, its transmission was interrupted by the first Gulf War. Oh, really? and, uh, yeah, and put off for about, I don't know, eight, nine months. So um, I, can t I remember it being 91. Uh, and that really kick-started things in this country because there are no end of particularly young players who were completely unaware of this stuff. And, um, you know, and especially the, the fireworks element of things, um, you know, an awful lot of rock and roll players who said you can't do that on acoustic guitar. And, of course, you can, <laughs> <So>. <laughs> which is yeah, nice. But, um, yeah, sorry, sorry, I lost it. What, what was the question? Uh, John Larson. Yeah, John Larson. That's right. And he, uh, I, I met Ian, and um, he he didn't have one of my guitars, but he was he was very enthusiastic about sort of promoting somebody in this country making them. I mean, there've been one or two other people who, who turned out a few, but I was obviously trying to do it halfway seriously, um, mainly because of my enthusiasm for it as a as a music form. Uh, and he he said, why don't you come and meet John Larson? He's over here touring. And we met at, uh, in, I think it was his, somebody's flat somewhere in London. I can't remember where now. And he was there and he said, bring a guitar with you. And John Larson bought that guitar. And that's that's the guitar that's on there. And then went on uh, Jimmy Rosen. But there was, well, I think you'll find there's a, how should we put it? Um, a difference of view over who owns it. <laughs> <laughs> Very diplomatic might, of you, Mr. Lavoie. Yeah, well, I, I don't know all the ins and outs of what happened, but, um, uh, well, you know, Jimmy's got a pretty checkered past, so um, uh, goodness knows what happened. Sure, sure enough. And so, um, uh, and Jan was playing this. Do you think he did any recording with, the, with your guitar? I don't know. No. I don't know, to be honest. I mean, there was a picture on um, something up on um, YouTube a few weeks back with the Rosenberg, all the Rosenberg Brigade in a, a hotel room somewhere um, playing various guitars, including one of mine. And the, the strange thing was that they'd got, I don't know, something to do with the way it had been recorded. They were all appeared to be playing left handed. Everything was upside oh, OK, down. so it was like mirrored, I guess. Well, it's curious because we were doing a Zoom thing the other night. I mean, to be and, fair, uh, they are quite talented. I wouldn't be surprised if they could just play left-handed, you know. No, no, no. <laughs> all the words were upside down. <laughs> left to right. It was all wrong. <laughs> uh, you, can, you can do this on, on, the, on, the, on the computer. It's, it was weird because we were having a, a family Zoom and I said, hang on a minute. I'm sitting on the wrong side of you. My wife and sitting beside one another. I said, I'm, I'm on your right, but on this picture, I'm appearing on your left. It was just truly odd. Trippy. And then, then you, you press a button and turn it around. So mm. I don't know what they've done, but it's, it's neither here nor there. But the point I was going to make was that in the in this hotel room or wherever they were, um, there were three, uh, two or three of my guitars being played. So I don't know. They, they come and they go. There's a and, lot and, of them. And this was so the Rosenberg Brigade, Brigade you say? So Jimmy, Stoholo, Moses, the whole gang? Like uh, yeah, I can't remember who was there exactly, and a bass player. Um, I can't remember exactly who was there, but Do you know, um, certainly, certainly, um, Stockolo. Was and, that uh, was that like a recent Stockolo video or from a, a while back? Sorry, was that like a recent video? Or is that from like a while back? Or I don't know. I don't know. I only saw it a few weeks ago, uh, I, but when it was taken, I couldn't tell you. 
Oh, I'll check that out for sure. I mean, yeah. I thought I'd pretty much seen every single YouTube video of all Rosenberg performances Thank online, but I've, well I've obviously missed that one. <laughs> so that's amazing. So, I mean, you were making these guitars but way back in the 70s then, you were making these yeah. Macaferry Selma guitars. And did you start with that or were you one of those luthiers that were making other guitars and then kind of discovered Django and started doing that instead or...? Uh, well, the way it started was um, I was I was making yeah making guitars. Um, started making guitars for sale, so to speak, in 1970, and um, I'd always been fascinated with them because uh, it's a long story. But my father um, played used to play Spanish guitar and flamenco, and he knew quite a lot of other people who played similar music, and they often had. Well, not often, but occasionally had musical evenings at a friend's flat in uh, West End Lane, just off Finchley Road. And um, the music was mostly Spanish and South American music. And when they stopped for uh, eats and what have you, they always put Reinhardt uh, and, and Hot Club stuff on the record player. And I was introduced to this in my early teens. It's just, you know, the old man said, why don't you come over for a musical evening? So went and, and this, and of course, you see the pictures of the guitars on the album cover and things, which are quite, if you've not been, you know, I mean, nowadays there's so many of them about and the music is so popular and used for so many different things. Mm. People are more familiar with it. But back then, I mean, these things look quite exotic with strange shaped sound holes and all the rest of yeah, it. Yeah. And uh, I was fascinated. And of course the music was, I, I enjoyed the music then, never mind at a later date. So, yeah, totally. Uh, so that's how I, that's how I got into them, started making them, and I I made oh, I don't know uh, probably a couple of dozen guitars in that style, and then in '76 I was given a real one to repair. Uh, this chap in but when Brisbane. you say real, you mean like a Macaferry Selma? Yeah, a Selma Macaferry wow. D hole with all the gubbins. Wow. In fact, I was given two. One uh, one was a Selma Macaferry. Um, D-hole with all the internal structures and the the other one was um, an Eddie Freeman special which had been absolutely ruined and wrecked the, the chap who owned it I, I can I can talk about him because he's long gone <laughs> uh, a, I'm trying to think of his bloody name what was his name anyway he owned it's probably in, be, it's probably better you didn't name him actually yeah well it, it does, doesn't matter he owned a fleet of trawlers in Grimsby back in back in the day, so he was he was a wealthy man, and and uh, back when the fishing industry was big business, and uh, and he bought these guitars in the 30s, and he was an inveterate fiddler, and he messed about with them no end. He he didn't like the shape of the neck on this T hole; it was too sort of square for his liking, so he took a spoke shape to it. And then, you know, and exactly, yes, you're, you're wincing and you're, you're quite right to wince. He opened up the back of the neck only to discover that it's got metalwork in it. <laughs> oh, I just ruined this thing. Um, and the Eddie Freeman special, he tried to convert it to a six string. Were they the tenor guitars? Yes, sort of. They were a bizarre uh, instrument because they, the two outside strings of the, the four strings were the lower strings and the treble strings were in the middle. Really? Yeah, odd, odd sort of inside-out tuning arrangement. Um, hang on a second, we're going to have to do something about um, putting this um, phone on charge. Lynn, can we, can we put your phone on charge? 
because it's it's going to quit otherwise. This is um, <coughs> John's technical advisor here. Just uh... yeah, hold on a second. <laughs> Hi, Lynn. You all right? Hello. Yes, I'm fine. Thanks. Thanks for th thanks for saving the day for us, uh, Lynn. There we go. Yeah, we're, we're back. We're, yeah, we're up and running again. Jolly right. good. That's it. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I've lost my thread. Where was I? Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. This Eddie Freeman special, and. Um, He'd attempted to convert it to a six string by putting a wide fingerboard on top of the neck so that the fingerboard overhung the edges of the, of the, of the neck about three eighths of an inch on either side. It just ruined it and <laughs> drilled holes in it to put extra machine heads and oh, it just wrecked it. And it arrived in a pin liner. It had been in a garden <laughs> shed. So um, anyway, I've still got some of the bits. And uh, anyway. And some of the wreckage. Yeah, just, just just to complete the story, the six-string guitar with all the gubbins in um, had the front of it, like quite a lot of the original D holes, was very distorted and had been repaired several times. They have a they have a fundamental weakness down either side of the hole because there's just not enough woodwork there to hold it together. And you see, I've seen quite a lot of examples with severe distortion in the face of the guitar and sometimes uh, all sorts of action problems that are caused by it because it's collapsing under there's just not enough strength either side of the sound hole it's quite, quite close to the waist of the guitar hmm. and um you just there's just not enough woodwork to hold it together plus the other weak point is where the cutaway is relative to the large d hole there's not enough woodwork there and you end up with a, a, a distortion and collapse between the cutaway and the sound hole this is on the face of the guitar because it's in compression at that point. Anyway, I said, I'll put a new front on it and I'll put a new neck on it. So um, I did that, put a new front, new neck. I couldn't really, at the back in those days, I still can't, um, accurately reproduce the colours of the sound hole rosette and the sort of staining because this guitar looked wonderful it looked like it had been on the ceiling of the pub for about 30 years you know you got that real ancient looking pattern. a bit like me then that, yeah okay <laughs> the, the, fl the floor of the pub maybe <laughs> anyway he had this thing and uh, he took it back and he died um within oh, probably 18 months of, of taking the guitar back I can remember his name now, Harry Crampin. There you go. You can you can edit that out if you don't. Fancy. <laughs> and um, uh, yeah, he had it. And he, he, he his effects obviously the family were clearing out the stuff, and the guitar was sold, and it appeared on an album cover uh, from Wazo. If you can remember the back in the early oh, days yeah. of Wazo. Yeah. Was it, was, it, was it the live at Loren? Oh. No, Gypsy Swing. I think it was Gypsy Swing Volume Four or something like that. They're, they're standing there in the sort of time-honoured pose with, with sort of standing very upright with the guitars on the ground with a hand on the headstock, uh, sort of very posed way, and deliberately so. And I thought, I recognise that guitar. And <laughs> <laughs> it was the one that I'd prepared for him. So uh, yeah, I don't know who was playing it. I don't know whether it was... Um, I can't remember whether it was Vivi Limburger who was playing it or... or well, I mean, who was in it? Uh, Patty right. Lappin. That is Vivi Lambert. Uh, yeah. I don't know if you can see that, John. It's a little... Yeah, wait a minute. Which one is it? Oh, you found some. It's not that one. Uh, I don't think... Oh, it could have been that one. So this is Wazo 4 Gypsy Swing. This one yeah. Called. And there's a D-hole and an oval hole there. I'm, it's a long time since I've seen the album cover. Crikey. 
Don't see those these days. When we, when we go for a break, I'll try and dig out the Live at Loren album and see if it's the same guitar, because I've got a copy of that somewhere. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. I don't know whether he used the guitar on the recordings or not, or whether it was just, you know, I mean, you never know with these things, because people pose with all sorts of bits and then go and do something else. So, I don't know. Well, um, seen... oh, sorry. sorry, sorry, Joe, carry on, carry on. I was just going to say, I've seen a few of those Eddie Freeman specials, but I've seen way more that have been converted to six-string than the original. Yeah, most of them have. And, and if it's done, uh, you know, in a very subtle manner, it's okay. Um, they are, they're slightly more lightly braced than the original ones, but, but none of the, as far as I know, none of the Eddie Freeman specials had any of the internal structures. They were just a hollow guitar. Right. Um, and, um, you know, they the the bracing on them is really quite quite slight. Well, they're only four strings, um, so you've got to be careful how you string them, I think. But um, no, you're quite right. Most of them have been converted. But the, the instrument, I don't know how much you're familiar, the instrument at the time was Eddie Freeman's attempt to make an instrument which would be playable by the guitar player or the banjo player in the band okay. so that you know, he'd be able the banjo player could play could play this instrument the chord shapes would be approximately right and it would give a suitably woody tone rather than the metallic clank and um uh, you know, that was the, the idea was that the, the banjo player however musicians union didn't like that because they would much rather have a guitar player and a banjo player employed by the band so they didn't want something that was going to essentially do away with somebody's job yeah you're losing work there aren't you yeah that's right and they mounted a campaign against it and it sort of sank without trace basically that's absolutely presumably a lot of the guitar players played banjo too there's a lot of photos of al Bowley playing macaferry style guitars and and banjo in his yeah and and as 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 um, I think I'm correct in saying that that Reinhardt played um, banjo yeah. or banjo yeah. guitar at any rate in in the early days in the, in the Balmuset things before before he sort of became known on his own. Um, yeah, so That's right. you know he saw the error of his ways basically. <laughs> um, <laughs> lads, brilliant. So look, um, let's take a quick break. Uh, we're going to put on a tune. Um, we're going to go. We've been in the past. We're going to go right to the future now. And uh, I don't know, a lot of you, I think, are going to be very familiar with the Gypsy Jazz group Hot Club of Jupiter. Well, they've got a new album coming out on April 16th. It's called uh, Hot Club of Jupiter versus London. And the reason being is that every track on this album is actually all about a different part of London, which is pretty cool. So we've got, uh, we've got Chelsea Bridge, and then we've also got tunes like... Um, Foggy Day, of course, which is uh, written about London. We've got Down and Out in Paris and Catford, which I think is pretty cool. Um, <laughs> uh, in the group, we've got um, Kit Macy, Kit Massey on the violin, Christian Mill on the guitar, Rory Dempsey on the bass, Matt French on the drums, and John Chenoy on clarinet. It's really cool stuff. It's very original. It's, uh, it's like gypsy jazz, but very heavily arranged. It's almost like, it's almost like prog rock almost, but gypsy jazz. And... Um, it's released on April the 16th and they're going to do a kind of an album launch uh, live from the London Transport Museum. How cool is that? Anyway, so until then, you can enjoy this tune. This is a tune called The Cut. <laughs> Thank you. 
it was. So that was the Hot Club of Jupiter with their tune, The Cup. Be sure to follow the links in the description. Buy that album. You can buy it on iTunes. You can buy it on their website. Uh, April the 16th is the live stream from the London Transport Museum. I think that's going to be loads of fun. So definitely check it out. Now then, guitars. So here's the thing. You buy a guitar. It's brand new. And you think, God, I've got a great brand new guitar. But the thing is, they tend to get a little better as they age, right? They kind of wear in, the wood begins to get kind of comfortable, gets into the groove. The question I have is, how long does that last? How long does a guitar, how, when does it reach its peak? Because presumably at some point it will kind of reach its peak and then it will sort of die out, right? Uh, well, they do to a certain extent. Um, I mean, if you, if you, never mind gypsy guitars for a moment, but things like flamenco guitars, uh, the general view would be, I think, that if you manage 20 years out of a flamenco guitar, you've done well. 20 because years? They, they, yeah. They, they, they're designed, built very light uh, for a sort of very fast response and not much sustain. They want that sort of um, slightly percussive, explosive edge to them. And if you build them that light, they tend not to last all that long. And they often talk about guitars being played out with flamenco yeah, guitar yeah. um it's a bit different with with uh selma type guitars because you you the mechanics of the thing are different because the the the, the whole body is in compression from one end to the other because the tailpiece is hooked over the bottom of it with most guitars with a fixed bridge it's in compression from the bridge towards the fingerboard and the sound hole and it's in tension on the other side because the bridge is anchored in the middle of the soundboard but if you've got um, something with a tailpiece, it's, it's in compression from one end to the other. And assuming that you have built it with enough bracing to support the downward pressure of the strings on the soundboard, um, and it's not, you know, I mean, some guitars are built so light that they, you can see they're collapsed or they're, they're sagging under the pressure of the strings. Uh, often you can tell that because the, the action's gone down and people have packed up or shimmed the bridge and done all sorts of things like that in order to, to um, restore a reasonable action for playing. Um, yeah, assuming that, shims. sorry. I've, I've seen some at Samwell with about that, that thickness of shims under the bridge. Well, exactly. When so it's just not, not enough woodwork in there holding it together. Um, in which case, you know, they they won't last all that long. But if it's been, you know, reasonably constructed, I well, I reckon you should get, crikey, 50, 60 years out of a guitar at least. Uh, I mean, most of them seem to suffer some kind of damage more than anything else. I was going to say, they, they might die of other causes before they even reach that level of maturity anyway. Yeah, I would have thought so, most yeah. of them. But, I'm, su um, I'm, su I'm surprised that the for like 20 years, like... Because, I mean, you think of violins and stuff. I mean, they seem to be able to last hundreds of years. Oh, right? yeah. Well, it's a bit different, isn't it? Because the, 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 it's a carved front on a violin. Um, so you, it's, it's a much um, stronger construction, if you think about the geometry of the thing. It's curved in two dimensions. Plus, you've got a sound post connecting it to the back. So the, the load, to a certain extent, is distributed. Um, I mean... I don't know about violins particularly, but you're quite right. They do last a long time. I mean, and, and other violin family instruments, basses and things that are 200 years old, 300 years old and are still performing well. So, do you know something? I, I need to ask you a bit about um, your knowledge of violins because I was, um, I saw this, well, I saw this thing online. Okay. So, and we, we talked about it a little bit on the phone. So 
Um, one of the most famous um, gypsy jazz acts of all time, the Manic Street Preachers. Um, the lead singer had a gypsy jazz guitar for a while. Obviously, Manic Street Preachers are like a 90s rock band, right? But the singer James Dean Bradfield had a gypsy jazz guitar. He played it on one of his albums. And I saw a video of him playing it. And like, it's a bit weird because he's got this guitar, this shape that I recognize. And he's just playing it like with the Bob Dylan would play chords, you know. But mm. on this website here, it talks about all the gear that this band has. And it says, other guitars less seen now. It says, a jazz guitar manufactured by the violin maker John Voix of Lincolnshire. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Accurate down to the last detail. Yeah, so tell me, what, which of this is true? What is this is myth? What, what's going on here? Well, for a start, the name's Levoir. <laughs> You're well aware. Uh, and um, no, I've never made a violin, ever. So, so you're not the famous John Voir violin player. Maybe there is somebody in Maybe it's another guy. <laughs> and how about the connection with this uh, Welsh rock singer then? Is, is, is uh, well, you're quite right, because that was pointed out to me some years ago, and I've, I've seen the pictures of him. In fact, I've seen this video of him playing it on some TV thing they did yonks ago. Um, uh, he didn't buy it from me. He bought, I, I don't know where he got it. I might have bought it in Andy's music shop or something like that in the West End. Uh, which I people I used to deal with many years ago, um, but he didn't buy it from me. Um, we've had no contact over it, so uh, I don't know. That that is, you know, he always so thought, you, oh, just like this. So fair enough. And and so you've you've never talked to this guy before no. about guitars, and and you've no idea how your names because there's a, another thing I found, which is actually um, an article in a French guitar magazine that puts you down as the maker of his gypsy jazz style guitar also there's no idea how this has come about well you know what james dean bradfield yeah and the, the, the about French... that guitar. yeah yeah oh, yeah well yeah i did make it but i didn't make it for him oh so i see okay he bought, yeah, it, yeah. bought it in a shop or acquired it i don't know he might have bought it on ebay i, I think okay. probably predates ebay but um yeah, he, he didn't he didn't um, didn't order it from me. So no, just took it up and must have found it and thought, oh this will do does such and such, you know. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um it must be funny, isn't it? Because I mean I, I don't know how many guitars you've made. Do you know how many guitars you've made? Do you keep count? Gypsy jazz guitars probably give or take fifty in either direction, about seven hundred. Seven hundred? Gosh. Yeah, well I've been so cool. making them on the basis of about at least 15 a year since 1976. Uh, I mean, that I make other instruments as well. How, so, how, how long does it take you to make one? Like how many hours? Oh, Christ. Uh, I don't know uh, in terms of hours. I mean, I was making, including all the other repair work and everything else, I was, there was a point when I was making about 18 to 20 guitars a year. Um, but there's not so many these days because Basically, I can't be asked. <laughs> I've done enough of it. Fair enough. But, um, no, it's um, crikey. I don't know how many hours, to be absolutely honest with you. Probably there's got to be, I don't know, there's got to be 60, 70 hours in a guitar by the time no. you've finished all the messing. Yeah. It might even be longer than that. I've never actually logged it, to be okay. honest with you. Yeah. Um, how, you how much... Go on. Oh, I was just going to ask, how much of your work is repair work? nowadays oh uh in terms of hours of the week probably about half of it 
Um, you know, I mean, I, I work on all sorts of guitars. Uh, I mean, today I've been working on somebody's Strat. Uh, I've also today been working on oh, a weird guitar. Are you familiar with lag guitars, French? No, I don't think so. All right. I mean, they're regular guitars. This one is a, a Spanish-style guitar, and it has on board, I am reliably informed, all sorts of electronic stuff. There's a sort of a, a screen on one side of it on the panel, and you can you can you can have automatic reverb while you're playing it. It's got some some uh, transducers in it, and uh, it picks up. It will record what it, what you've just played and play it back to you through the guitar while you're then working on top of oh, it. Oh, I think I've heard of this. So, and does it look like an acoustic guitar? But it can do. Oh, it looks things. like a regular guitar. Okay. Yeah. 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 Regular fixed bridge Spanish guitar. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. But yeah. it can do things that like you, you would expect from an electric guitar and an amp. That's like, right. Yeah, and, I have and, come across and, this, actually. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's completely do it. Well, it, I said to the chap when he delivered it, I said, has it got a manual with it? And he said, um, no, he said, you can download bits and pieces. But, I mean, he, he wanted me to deal with the action on the thing and one or two other issues, but, which is fine. <laughs> <laughs> I'll deal with physics. We'll leave, we'll leave the electrical electricery stuff to somebody else but no, you're asking what i do and and yes it's it's quite a lot of repair work uh, um, so fine you know it's bread and butter so um, what what was there a time i mean because i mean i was going to ask you like when you were making this in the uk these guitars in the 70s was there really many luthiers around because it doesn't really feel i mean there are luthiers fantastic luthiers in the uk but it still doesn't feel like there are many and was there a kind of heyday of making these guitars where they're just totally in demand? Has it just gone steadily up or was there a period when everybody no, was loving them? Um, and... When I started doing it uh, in the UK, I was the only person who was doing it really seriously. Gypsy jazz guitars. I mean, they wanted, you know, Chris Eccles Hall? It's the name Chris Eccles Hall ring any bells? Can't say it does. He's no. another London based guitar maker. Um, he, I think he died. Mm, two, three years ago, and he made some of them. He made a handful of them over the years, but he was known as um, a, a classic, uh, uh, an acoustic guitar maker in a regular sense, and also electrics. Um, there have been other people who've made uh, gypsy-style guitars, but I was the one who did more of it than anything else. Um, there was a fellow called Chris, oh Christ, hang on a minute. What's that? Are you there? What's the fellow's name down in, in Devon? Guitar maker. Not Chris. Oh, it doesn't matter. Let it go. It doesn't matter. But um, I, I was the only one who was doing it seriously, um, really. And when I first started, I more or less had the UK market to myself, to be honest. Uh, and of course, this, this predates any of the stuff, with the exception of the CSLs from the 60s. This predates any of the modern guitars from the Far East. So the, 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 the CSLs? CSL, yeah. CSL, um, you, you still see them. They come up for sale secondhand. CSL, uh, Gypsy Jazz Guitars. Um, they were introduced by Morris Summerfield, Summerfield um, um, Wholesale, um, up in the Northeast. And um, he introduced these guitars uh in the 60s they were called the gypsy and they, they were the first guitar that came from the far east they were made in japan 
and they came with a shaped case. And I reckon probably at the time the case was probably worth more than the guitar. Have <laughs> <to be honest. laughs> <laughs> you come across the Ibanez ones from Japan from the sort of 70s and 80s that were apparently designed by McAfee? After... Yeah, the, the things like the Mac 10. I think. Um, yeah. yeah, Ibanez. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Well, I went to the, it's interesting actually, I went to the um, UK music show, God, I'm trying to think how long ago, it was when it was held at the Russell Hotel in central London. So we're talking probably the late 70s, something like that. And uh, Mario McAfee was actually there. Really? He was, he, yeah, he was still alive. He was, he was with Morris Summerfield. I mean, I didn't speak to him, but he was there um, promoting the guitars and just talking about things in general. Um, anyway, these the CSL guitars, they came over in the 60s. I don't know when they stopped introducing them, when they stopped importing them, I'm not sure. But um, you then, there was quite a big gap until things like the Gitans came out um, and, and um, Saga, various other things from the Far East. But you're talking really about the, the 90s for those are the very earliest, and most of them well into this century. Mm. So... Going back to where you were, where you were saying, I more or less had the market to myself in the eighties, and and the early nineties. Ninety one, as we were discussing earlier, the Django Legacy video came out, and that really did kick off so much interest in gypsy jazz in this country, and other people got involved with it and, and started making guitars, but none of them, to the best of my knowledge, have made as many as I have. So, um, wow, you know, and yeah. and. You think, because I mean, one of the things I find interesting about Gypsy Jazz is it's been around for such a long time. But for me, the scene, it kind of feels like it's, it's still in its infancy in what it might look like in 10, 20 years time. It still feels like a tiny scene. And so I don't know if, if you could gauge from just how many people are getting in touch with you trying to make guitars, how you can gauge just how popular this music is becoming, you know? Well, I, I think the, well, the music, yeah, I don't know whether or not it sort of might have reached a bit of a plateau. It's difficult to say. Um, I don't know. I mean, it, I think the public awareness of it amongst the, you know, um, um, excluding um, people who are, how should I put it, desperately enthusiastic about it, um, such as players like yourself um and and me um people who are really enthusiastic about it but there's, there's i think there's more recognition in the general public because they hear more of it we were watching telly the other night i don't know whether you get it down south there's a program called bangers and cash which is we all don't about, even have tellies anymore down here you don't even have no, tellies. No, no, well whatever <laughs> uh, it's a program. It's it's all about um, um, a company in yorkshire who um, essentially auction antique vehicles and that sort of thing. You've frozen on my screen. I don't know. Can you, know, you still I, hear I can hear you good. You've frozen on oh, my better. screen. You've Joe, come back what, are we all back? Joe, what does it look like in yours? Are we all frozen? Uh, John, you're frozen, um, but I can still hear you fine. Okay. Uh, as long as you can still hear me, that's, in, that's the only bit. Yeah, I mean, uh, carry on with what you're saying. Anyway, this program is all about um, people in Yorkshire, this company in Yorkshire who, who uh, auction antique motor vehicles. And all the stories that go with them and blow me down the the, the soundtrack music or background music to it is often gypsy jazz mm. you know straight out and, and i don't know who's playing but it's it's very much in you know in that style and you hear it all the time 
on the radio. For goodness sake, they used it. They used it for a co-op advert years ago. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. I was bloody messing about on my phone when I was meant to be doing some work on Facebook, just going through daft videos, you know, compilations of people, you know, falling off cliffs and all that sort of stuff. And the, what was the music? It was Gypsy Jazz. It was it was a weird kind of a almost like um, what do they call it? Electro swing, but it yeah. was it was like. Um, Yosho Stefan or somebody, I think it was probably him actually doing the lead, lead over it. Yeah. I think somebody just taking the lead and put it on their thing. But, and that was a, 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 a crappy Facebook thing watched by kids and me, I suppose. There was uh, a, with like 50 million views, you know? There was well, a, I, go on. Sorry, go on, Joe. I was just going to say there was a computer game in the early 2000s called Mafia. Don't know oh, yeah, from, yeah. Don't yeah. Know I, was, I was just about to mention it. My son used to play it and, uh, <laughs> and that had stuff on there. <laughs> yes, exactly. the, whole soundtrack, the whole soundtrack was Django pretty, pretty much. Yeah, I think yeah. Louis Prima and stuff, but mostly yeah. Django. And I think that actually really did turn, up, turn a lot of sort of younger people onto, onto Django. Yeah. Do you want to hear something mad, right? And then, <clears throat> and then we'll go for a quick break, right? The other night I was watching a film called Gattaca. Have you ever seen this film, Gattaca? It's um, it's got um, Ethan Hawke and Uma Thurman and Jude Law. It's set in the future, and in the future, when you're born, right, they do a little blood test on you, and they can look at your genetics, and they can work out straight away if you're going to have like a heart defect, are you going to be an Olympic athlete, are you going to be have be intelligent, are you going to be stupid, and so straight away from birth, you get put into whatever part of the society you're deemed to fit. So if you're a bit thick and you've got a dodgy ticker. So you become the dustbin man. And if you're strong and fit, then they make you an astronaut or whatever. And, and that's how society gets kind of split up. It's like a dystopian future. Anyway, there's a scene where they're in this fabulous, posh hotel, restaurant place where all the lovely, beautiful, wonderful people go. And there's a band playing. And what are the band playing? They're playing Nawaj by Django Reinhardt. And they're playing it note for note Django solo. And I thought that was really clever because Django, of course, was disabled. Yeah. So, so in this future society, Django would have been like, no, nope, he's no good, bottom of the pile. Yet there they all are in, in the future, all these uh, whatever, and they're <laughs> listening to the music of this guy who would have been rejected by their own society. I thought that was pretty cool. Mm. Anyway, let's have a quick break. Um, John, mate, is there a Django Reinhardt tune that you'd like to put on, like us all to have a listen to? Uh, well, yeah. Um, you, you asked me when we were setting this up what I, I might choose, and, and I, I chose "I'll See You in My Dreams," and, and suggested that nobody else would ever choose it. Now, I was joking, of course, because <laughs> it's got to be one of the most popular tracks that he recorded, and it just strikes me as being a sublime guitar solo. It, it, it does absolutely everything. There's slow bits in it, and it's just so inventive from one end to the other. And I'm instead, chap I play with has, um, on a good day, and and when he's not had um, too much to drink, he can make a passable passable go at it, and which is which is great, and and it always gets a cheer. So, mm, <laughs> so that would be good. Yeah, it's great stuff. Absolutely, it's one of his best solos, and there's actually a pretty cool, very small lesson on one of the licks that you can find somewhere on YouTube, some, some Northern guy. It's, it's on Neil Corkery's wonderful YouTube channel. Same YouTube channel as this podcast. <laughs> Thank you very much. Here we go. Django Reiner. I'll see you in my dreams. Check it out.
Good stuff. It's a good solo, that, isn't it? That we all just listened to. Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah. <laughs> Never tires. Absolutely. Yeah. Go on, Joe. What, what, what were you going to say, mate? Um, I, I just wanted to ask John about pliages in gypsy jazz guitars. I am... Um, uh, I got a, a sort of custom-built gypsy jazz guitar um, last year from uh, Johan Cholet, a French luthier, um, brilliant luthier, um, who I know from Samoa. But um, I requested a Favino size guitar with a pliage, not knowing a huge amount about what a pliage does to the sound, but thinking it might just make it more punchy. But um, it's a wonderful guitar, but I don't have anything to compare it to. And I just wondered what your view was on on pliages, which I think is a sort of heat formed ridge in the top. Yeah, yeah, it's a crease, if you like. Yeah, um, yeah it, it, interesting. <laughs> How long have you got? It's uh, essentially, the, as, as far as I understand it from uh, Mario McAfee's original drawings and, and, and writings about it, what he was attempting to do to a certain extent was recreate um, the sound, similar sort of soundboard structure as is used on Neapolitan mandolins, yeah. which have got a, a broken front in them. I mean, it's a very much definite bend. And in fact, if you look inside those, they, they often have a, a, a knife cut on the inside so that mm. the front is actually sort of broken, if you like, at that point. But what it does is, um, it, on, on, on the guitar at any rate, uh, the way it's put together is you've got the two halves of the soundboard and the soundboard's conventionally in two halves. You put a crease in it. Now, where the crease is placed is, is open to question. Uh, I put it directly under the bridge. Some people put it slightly tail side, tailpiece side of the bridge. Mine, mine's uh, slightly tail side. Yeah, it doesn't, I don't think it's actually that critical, but what it does is when you, it's difficult to use it without doing it without using my hands, but you've got two, um, you've got the, a, a gentle bend in the soundboard. And if you join, if you then take a little pleat out between the high point and the um, base of the soundboard by the tailpiece, and then draw it together, when you glue all that together, what effectively you have is a very flat cone. Um, which has some structural integrity of its own. It has an inherent stiffness by virtue of the geometry, never mind the bracing that you're going to put on it. So it enables you to build a soundboard stiff but light, which is what you want for, um, particularly for promoting the travel side of things. Uh, and um, it gives you, if the lighter it is, generally speaking, you get a nice fast response from it not too much sustain because you don't really want that on these guitars it's um, it confuses things if there's too much sustain in my view uh, and you, you you you're trying to get this sort of bit of a pop at the beginning of each note and the the soundboard construction seems to sort of lend itself to to going in that in that direction that's i mean really you know does that does that sort of square with what you found out because it seems absolutely i mean like for, for this one it's favino size with a pliage and it's got that sort of dry favino sort of uh bark mm -hmm. uh, and then yeah i mean absolutely like this it's very dry it's very poppy it's very um um yeah I mean, exactly how you described 
actually. A lot of people, you know, um, especially people who come from playing flat top guitars, um, you know, they're saying, well, the things it's got, it's really quite a coarse sounding guitar. You know, there's not a great deal of subtlety to it. Well, that may well be the case, but it's, it's, it's appropriate for the music. Absolutely. It's um, interesting that you mentioned flamenco guitars because I used to play a little bit of flamenco band. You're all right. You're pretty good. <laughs> um, and I was always drawn to the Blankers, the, the, is, is it Cypress, I think, back in Cypress? Yeah, yeah um, Cypress back in Cypress, well, by tradition, although not, in, not entirely, but yes, it, is, it was the traditional material, very and light it, in weight. And it's the same thing, it's that sort of dry, punchy, percussive, barky sound, which sounds amazing for traditional flamenco, and in my opinion, amazing for gypsy jazz, and uh, I think... yeah. It's, it's interesting what you said about the pliage because that's been exactly my experience. It's, it's mm. really got that crisp uh, uh, response without, without much sustain. But as you say, that's exactly what you want. This is what you want. Uh, I mean, I, I, you know, I, I don't know exactly what, uh, what he was driving at, not absolutely precisely, but um, it, that seems to have been the general area that he was going for, something which is, um, has inherent stiffness before you put the bracing on. Because um, otherwise, it's just a flat bit of, of I think the soundboard on most guitars starts out at any rate being flat. Yeah. You, you introduce a little bit of left to right bellying into it anyway by the braces, uh, and uh, you know that sort of puts a shake to it as well. But the, but if you start out with something which has some inherent stiffness, like like a speaker cone, yeah, has that uh, you know ability to take a certain amount of, of loading before you've even put the bracing on it. So that helps, and then you get. <laughs> You know, the round to the vexed question of, of sound holes and sizes and, and how that affects the, the um, resonant frequencies of the guitar. It's, um, it's it, I, always people say to me sometimes, you know, can you make me a such and such? And my response is, well, we can go in the right direction, but there's always an element of, of, of luck and serendipity in it because you're dealing with natural materials and you cannot, not in my experience, be that precise. And although, I mean, if I'm making guitars for stock uh, and not um, to somebody's particular, I'm not going in somebody's um, requested direction, shall I say, um, then, you know, I tend to make them all the same in principle at any rate, but they don't all turn out like that. They vary from one example to the next. And, you know, I could have, say, three guitars in the workshop and I know which one I like. And I, you know, I would, I'd choose that one. I'd choose number one. And somebody else would come in and go, mm, "Oh, like number three. And you think, mm. "Well, all right, fine." You know, <laughs> you like it. That's all you need to know, really. Let, let me ask you this, because you you touched upon it a little bit there when it comes to the wood. So obviously, wood is a is a natural resource. It's not factory made, and so it's not uniform. And as a result, by the time it's all constructed and whatever, you can manipulate the wood and to some extent but the wood will have its own natural whatever that colors the sound when it comes to choosing what wood to make a guitar of because guitars are made from different woods it could be maple back and side or it could be whatever are some of these woods have just an intrinsic um characteristic so let's say as joe you were saying you want a guitar that's got a real bark to it and you were talking about that that cypress wood Maybe there's some woods that are naturally more, I don't know, mellow. So genuinely, there's different woods that just simply have... The back and sides of this Favino pliage guitar are maple. 
So it's literally oh. every component you could take to make it as barky and and sort of. Is it, it solid? Yeah. Oh, back and sides. I don't know. Because um, I mean, I don't know. I don't know about modern. Um, when you said this was built by, uh, how did you pronounce your name, Cholet? Yeah, Johan Cholet. Yeah. C-H-O-L-E-T, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So I'm familiar with his work, um, but I, I don't know what he does. I mean, most most of the European makers um, make make them in the same style that they were made in the original factory, which is laminate back and sides. I mean, yeah. most of the original Selmas were, well, commonly rosewood on the outside, the visible face. On the inside of the guitar, they were mostly mahogany. And in the middle of the sandwich, because it's a, the, the back and sides are our three-piece laminate, the mostly in the middle, they were poplar. Oh, um, really? Yeah, poplar going, going at 90 degrees, so, you know, in the regular plywood style. So the two outside veneers are run parallel to one another, so to speak, and the, and the veneer in the middle runs across the grain, uh, which is great from structural integrity and, and all the rest of it, and probably makes the probably makes things a bit more predictable because essentially it's a man-made material you know plywood doesn't occur naturally obviously so um it's essentially man-made material and you can probably be a bit more predictable about how it's going to behave i've only ever made guitars from solid materials because that was the way i was well say taught um when i started making guitars um you know well, my my old man helped me with a couple of guitars when i was in my early teens because he played and he also yeah. made a Guitars. So, um, Actually, I, I was I was going to ask, how did you learn to be a luthier? Uh, were you an understudy of a luthier, or do you just no, did it on the week? Wanted a guitar, couldn't afford one. Bottom oh, one so, so uh, the the Brian May way. Well, the first guitar I made was a twelve string, and uh, which I made with some help from the old man when I was uh, thirteen, something like that. And uh, he'd made a guitar, um, classical guitar. And uh, he helped me make this this 12-string guitar. And of course, didn't know anything about necks in those days or truss rods or anything like that. And of course, 12-string guitar is under huge stress. And uh, the neck went an appropriate shape, shall we say, <laughs> after being strung for a few days. And then many years later, I retrofitted uh, a, a truss rod to it and retrieved it. So. Uh, wow. I don't know where it is now. No idea. But uh, yeah, that, that was a long, how long ago? That would have been about, that would have been about 1962, something like that. Hell of a long time ago. So you, you say you made this guitar and your dad helped you. So you, your dad was a luthier or he was just a guy? No, no, no. He, he played guitar uh, and, and, you know, woodworking's in the family, if you like. So okay. I inherited tools from him and, and um, grand, further back uh, grandparents and great grandparents on, on my father's side. So there's some, some tools in the workshop which go back ooh, probably now, I think, end of 100 years. So uh, one oh. or two of them. And it's only the good ones that survive. Hmm. what what about then um you talk about the woods like um i remember i was watching this documentary it's about mark knopfler and he went to he has a particular luthier of choice and they went around to his workshop and he was talking about the way that he picks the wood that he wants and he had all these little tests like so he'd have like this kind of and a cut wood and he's tapping it he's trying to listen to a certain resonance and stuff yeah when you're, I mean, how do you get wood? Do you go to B&Q and you're just going up the aisles just knocking on all the wood? Or is there a special place where you've got to get super nice wood and then do you have to buy it and then choose which bits are good? I mean, what's the process like? 
Oh, there, well, there are there are several specialist suppliers in the country, in in the UK, and there are others elsewhere, particularly in in the states and places like that. But no, I I go, and well, <laughs> under the current circumstances, it's been a bit difficult. But under you know when when things are are more normal, you just go down there and spend the morning going through um, sets of of uh, fronts and and what have you. I mean, the, the the business part of the guitar is the front of it. That's the most critical part, and um, that's where you need to spend time choosing the piece of wood that you're going to use. I mean, what you make the back and sides from contributes to the sound, but the, the working part of it is, is the front of the guitar and how it's put together. And what you're looking for, at least what I'm looking for, and I, I suggest that probably common to most Luthi, is you're looking for a piece of wood for the soundboard where the grain direction is correct in three dimensions and it is stiff and light. If it happens to be visually pleasing as well, that's great. I personally, and this, you know, I know a lot of people would disagree with this, but I personally don't mind coarse growth at all. Um, they, they, um, the general view yeah, is that you should have um, multiple growth rings to the inch and all that sort of thing, and, and particularly the classical brigade, they get in a real state about this. But I personally am quite happy to use quite coarse timber as long as it is stiff and light and that's that's what you're looking for and that that will make you know you pick it up and you think oh, make a nice soundboard hmm. and um you know just know these things also go through fads and you know oh um, and two or three years ago people were using um not not gypsy players not gypsy guitar makers particularly but there was a big thing for engelman spruce from the states and and uh, Ad adirondack spruce and I, I was given one or two lumps to make things out of, and I thought I don't want to use this because it was it was horrible and bendy and rubbery, and I I didn't like it at all. So you know, speaking to, fine. To some you know. extent, there is a bit of kind of I don't want to say subjectivity, but there's there's you got to consider how you work with it as well and things like oh, that. Oh yeah, exactly. And it be, it might suit some style of guitar making rather than others, but certainly for gypsy, what you're looking for is something which is stiff and light. Mm. But that was what. I mean, I'm going boring on about this, but it's one of the things that Maca Ferry did. He he was absolutely insistent that when um, the timber was selected for the fronts, that the the billet of timber was split from top to bottom, so that it will only split down directly down the grain, and that way round you're going to have um, as near as possible the grain being um, absolutely parallel all the way down throughout the thickness of the soundboard. I mean, the soundboard's only what two and a half something like that millimeters two two and a half millimeters thick and you don't want short grain in it you want the grain to run right down there so that it is mechanically strong and he insisted that things were split rather than uh, and then then faced rather than just being sawn so when you go choose the stuff you have to look for these the grain being direct in three dimensions do you know i'll um getting technically rather rather tedious no this is good this is this is what i want to hear man you know um i'll tell you a story i knew a chap He's dead now, bless him. But um, a while ago, he ran into some money, like, um, you know, great, great Auntie Helga died or something, left him a lot of money. So him and his wife, they, they're piano players, and they got a Steinway made for them. And they went to Germany to the factory to actually watch it being made, like the sort of process. And they said there was a guy in the factory, and he had one job. Now, you know a piano, you know, you've got the keys, and then you've got the hammers that kind of hit the strings. And... You've got these felt hammers and a really long, thin bit of wood connects the key to the... 
well, there was a chap and he would spend his time in this special sound treated room and he would get all these long sticks and he would drop them from a certain height onto a surface and he would listen to how they, and then he would have a pile of no and a pile of yes. And that was his job. He would be weeding out these things that didn't quite sound right in the bin, you know. It's yeah. incredible the, the 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 tiny margins that can generate a completely different sound on the other end, you know. Yeah. Well, you know, you you were saying earlier that you saw somebody picking up a piece of wood and and tapping it, listening to the resonance, sort of just just of this board of timber, an unworked board of timber, mm. and you can you, you you get a good idea of whether or not it's going to work for you because it they it's it's alive. Some bits of timber are absolutely dead. Just. It, I'm not a great fan of maple, despite what Joe was saying. And uh, people talk about maple guitars being bright. I've often found them quite middly. Uh, it depends on the maple. So because maple comes in all sorts of different forms and some of it can be quite sort of, um, I don't know, almost cardboardy. Like so, muddy sort of. Yeah, it can be. And, and, and the, the timber itself can be, you know, well, you just hold it up, and it doesn't have much of a ring to it as a board of timber. It's just sort of dead. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I have um, so briefly in the break, I, I mentioned this um, Joseph Tomorrow guitar I have. It's also maple back and sides, mm -hmm. and, and um, I very much suspect that's what's going on with that as well. As as I mentioned, the bridge is sort of flat on the bottom, and the sound is a bit dead but i also think the maple is just exactly that muddy middle heavy but not not in a not in a good way um yeah it can be i'm i mean it's interesting that i just this is to, on this business of, of whether or not things feel lively years and years ago i had a guitar came to me a, a genuine selma mcaferry came to me for um some fret work i think it was i can't remember now but the guitar was in absolutely fantastic condition. It looked like it had hardly been played and it had been used by one of the um, Far Eastern companies as a, a, a model because it was in such beautiful condition and you could see all the colours and everything. It was, it was a really nice looking guitar. And it was, it sounded like it was made of damp cardboard. It was absolutely lifeless, dead as a doornail. And yet, you know, all it, it it had all the right bits and pieces on it, but it just did not sound alive. And I don't know, happy, well, an unhappy combination of bits and pieces more than anything else. So, you know, they do vary, usually. Can I really briefly ask a, sorry. No, 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 please do, please do. Last question. No, um, go on, go on. Can I just really briefly ask a question about the, the sort of obvious difference between spruce and um, cedar? Mm-hmm. Um, spruce slightly heavier than cedar, and um, it's 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 more springy. If you if you took a, a strip of it, sort of a lolly stick shaped piece of it, and and you sort of bent it, uh, if you've got a piece of spruce and you bend it, left it bending overnight with a weight on it, you take that weight off in the morning, and it will more or less straighten out to go back to where it was roughly. Cedar tends to uh, not be quite so springy, and it's lighter. And I don't know, it seems to produce a slightly more brittle sort of sound. I mean, I've, I've used it quite a lot for making things like um, mandolins because it okay. seems to promote the top end quite well. I have used it quite a lot for guitars as well. And I know a lot of, a lot of makers too. The one great advantage it has for, as, a, as a material is that it comes in big, nice big, because they're 
bloody great trees and you get you get nice straight accurate timber uh, from them so you know it, it's a nice timber to work with um you like the sound of it, it's absolutely fine i mean you know they it, it's different i think if you're going to have a spruce soundboard it tends to have a slight filtering effect um not quite a cedar soundboard sort of almost produces everything that you put into it and can sometimes sound i know it's difficult to find the adjectives here um a little confused and the and the spruce soundboard tends to have a slightly more of a filtering effect um so maybe not not all those harmonics are being produced that the string's producing so i don't know uh, once again very much depends on the example mm. yeah fascinating absolutely fascinating lads we're just about there uh we're just about coming to the end of it now um but uh guys thanks so much for coming on john it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you absolutely fascinating thanks so no, much thanks. joe thanks for joining us again joe uh, always nice to nice to be with you well, sorry for completely uh nerding out no good that's why i brought you that's that's why you can't be nerds corner i don't know what can be yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so look lads we're gonna play another tune and uh this tune so um uh, we've had a bit of a sad story in our Gypsy Jazz uh, community. Uh, John Delaney uh, passed away recently, Australian Gypsy Jazz guitar player. Now, um, I, I never met John, and truthfully, I only discovered his music in January of this year when I was putting together a 2020 Gypsy Jazz playlist on Spotify, and I was just trying to find all the albums that have come out in 2020, and uh, John Delaney's album, I'll See You in My Dreams, came up. And... Um, it's just, um, like I say, I, I didn't really know the guy, but um, there's been loads of stuff on tributes on Facebook from people like Chablo Schmidt and Dennis Chang and uh, loads of people. Uh, Alex Bishop uh, did the Luthier, put up a video recently of, of John playing one of his guitars, presumably at a festival in, in the UK. Uh, and I just thought it'd be fitting to, to play one of his tunes from the album that he did in 2020, uh, I'll See You In My Dreams. This is a track called Harriet really lovely playing fantastic it actually really does have that kind of um you know he, he had quite an old school sound which personally i i love um and it just had that lovely kind of bit of romance that for me Absolutely. is what really makes django and gypsy jazz the real deal so you know have a drink for john uh, when you can and all our thoughts go out to his his family thanks for tuning into the podcast guys share it with your pals like the video etc boys thanks so much all the best we'll see you again soon cheers
Thank you.